0: I am your host, Raquel Ark, an American podcasting from Germany, and this is Listen In. Join this series of conversations with inspiring scientists, leaders, and authors about listening as a surprising superpower that is not always as easy as it seems. Believe me, I know, and I've been learning and will continue to learn, and I hope that this podcast will help you find practical ways to help others listen better. While you become better at leading people, catalyzing collaboration, transforming conflict, building trust and engagement. And I'll tell you, when really good listening happens, then the entire group, including you, can feel energized and inspired. So sit back and enjoy listening beyond what we typically think of. Be surprised how listening catalyzed a shy, quiet person into a strong leader working with very complex situations. President of the University System of Maryland Student Council, Annie Rappaport, is an experiential educator, peace worker, and researcher. And she shares her story about how listening helped her to find her leadership voice. As a PhD candidate, her research focuses on memory construction. Peace building and conflict transformation after conflict and natural disasters. In this episode, she talks about power dynamics and decision making and how to have a more balanced, dialogue focused listening conversation where you can both take in what others offer and contribute for better decision making and change. Enjoy listening in. So Annie, it's nice to have you here. I usually start off this podcast asking a very simple, maybe not so simple question. When you look back at when you first started to pay attention to listening or notice listening, the impact of listening, um, do you have a memory of that moment?
1: Yes. And it was very young in my life. It was when I was still just a child, I would just sit and be very quiet. I come from a very large family. I'm the youngest of 12.
0: Oh my gosh, really? And
1: yes. <laughs> I, come, I come from a very large family and they are all uh, half brothers and sisters. So I share a parent with all 11 and I came quite a bit later. So my closest sibling, I was a bit of a surprise. My closest sibling is 17 years older than I am. And that's my brother. And So, I was in this little bit of a different space where I was in a big family, but I was the only one that was about my age. And I played a lot with myself because I was a pretty big, pretty big age guy. (laughs) And I love to use my imagination and so forth. But I found that one of my favorite things to do was just to sit very quietly and listen to the sounds around me very closely. And then I would try to imitate them. And this would include sounds that would help me later on in my experiences throughout my schooling and high school and even up until COVID when I was in a choir because I'm a singer. And so listening very carefully has always helped me sing. And the other thing I would do is my father was a lawyer and he would have me, I don't know how good this was, but, but he would have me sit or be in his office with him. He had a home office for law and he would have me be the tape recorder for his sessions with people In his office is like a memory exercise. And so he would have people come and they wouldn't notice this little toddler, this little six, seven-year-old. And then afterwards we would recap (laughs) everything that I had heard to make sure that I was listening well. And so it's been a big part of my life, my whole life. I didn't learn about it being a form of study or a specific field until I was in My graduate studies, but listening has been a very big part of how I was educated from the time I was very little, uh, Mm -hmm. and very important to me. So, yeah,
0: that's really interesting. That's that um, to grow up well, not only because of the big family, and then that created the circumstances where you had space and time to listen to the sounds around you, and noticing how that impacted your singing and maybe other aspects of what you what you've done since then. And your dad, he gave you a huge skill probably back then. Oh, I wish I would have had that now. That would probably would have helped me in a lot of areas. You were probably a really good student.
1: Yes. Yes I was. And there was always a very big emphasis at home on education and education being both listening to sounds, audio sounds, but also it might sound funny, but it also had to do with the retention of and paying very close awareness to what one reads and sees as well. So just always being in constant, I would say what my parents always encouraged was to be curious and always in an absorption mode in order to best relate to the circumstances around me, I guess.
0: So I have a question for you. So mm-hmm. you grew up with listening as uh, absorption, right? I'm curious with you, with your understanding of listening now. What you know about listening now? Um, I'm thinking of what the opposite of absorption is. <laughs> 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 the other side of listening.
1: Yeah, that it's we're... not just
0: taking it in, but it's also doing something with it. It's a more active process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just thinking about that. Have you? uh, Do you have another perspective on listening right now that you've noticed besides how you grew up?
1: Yes, I would say I have changed as a person quite a bit since I was little. I was very shy. I would never in a million years have thought of being on a podcast (laughs) or or anything where the focus would have been on on what I was saying. So I was definitely it was definitely more of a. Absorb and retain. And that didn't change until I was in university. That I had a a very pivotal moment my senior year in undergraduate. And it's funny because I was performing arts, but I always wanted to be in the background. I always wanted to be in the choir. (laughs) That didn't bother me because I wasn't singled out. Uh, But we had this orientation. I was helping with transfer students. And so I got to go to a leadership training which was not something people ever really picked me out for things like that. Or it was very rare because I was on the quieter side and the shyer side. And I went to this training and they asked us to do a number of different exercises, one of which was non-verbally communicating what communities you belong to. So they'd had in circles and out circles. And at the time, I was attending a university in San Antonio, Texas, which I loved, my university. And I didn't know about this about my own university, but in that room of 150 or so students, I was one of only three who were Jewish. And so that was one really tiny in-circle <laughs> when they had those of us who were Jewish walk to the center, and there were just three of us. <laughs> and there were a number of in-circle, out-circles, and some of them were religious identity. Others were a bit, more, mm, a bit more hidden, so you had to build trust first. So there would be ones about whether or not you identified as having an eating disorder, whether or not you identified as previously being in environments of abuse and then they had ones that were more so you know go into the circle if if you like to play sports so it was a whole spectrum of different identities that you may have so after we all went through this circle in circle out circle exercise for those that were in smaller in circle groups they asked if any of us would speak to what it was like to be a member of that community and of the 3 Nobody else wanted to talk. And I had this moment where I didn't want to either, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I wasn't okay with nobody speaking up for Judaism. So I volunteered and I went into the center of this room with like 150 people and I about couldn't breathe. (laughs) I was so (laughs) scared, Uh, but I just simply answered questions for folks and I tried to just be myself, be honest and speak my truth quietly, but clearly. And afterwards I realized how many people that helped. And that was such a rewarding experience and meaningful experience. And it also wasn't that scary at the end of it. all; (laughs) It was just scary in the anticipation of it. So that was really a change, a very transformative moment for me to realize that I could share my story. I could share stories of others in a community that I belong to. I could be a conduit for a particular narrative or a particular background. And that could help create more compassion in in an environment I was in. It could help demystify. I learned that there were a lot of questions and mysteries surrounding my religious identity that I didn't realize were present prior to that moment. And it helped me connect to people very deeply in a short amount of time in a way that I was not used to connecting. So that's probably the pivotal moment where it went from, this is kind of a nice skill I have and people are always surprised at how I can remember so much about their lives because I've been listening to whatever they've told me in our interspersed interactions to I can also share and I can be responsive and be the other side of the engagement as well. And so now I would say my approach to listening is a bit more balanced. It's a bit more dialogue focused. And I no longer feel like I'm only taking in what others have to offer. I'm also offering myself up in a relationship type way, which has really, I think, helped enhance how I approach listening relationships.
0: Mm, that's a beautiful story, and that moment that was pivotal to you—you you were the one that was being listened to. Mm-hmm. So the listening piece actually helped you find your voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's really beautiful. So you you um, were paying attention to listening in a certain way, and um, and then you went to university, and you said that was the first time that you started paying attention to listening at a different level, or getting more involved in listening? What brought you to your listening research later in life?
1: Yes, later in life. Yes, because I would say that my listening really was anchored in performing arts until graduate
0: school. That was with the choirs.
1: Yeah, it was with choirs. It was with theater. You have to listen in order to take on a character. You have to listen to your folks that you're in a cast with Mm. and your crew and listening was such a core piece and listening also to nonverbal cues was very huge. We would have to do hours of work together where we would speak very, very little, but you're listening to all the facial expressions and movements and even listening just to how the people around you are breathing can, can really tell you so much about where they are in their minds or in their hearts and kind of help sense and empathize with where they may be. And, tell me more
0: about that before you move on. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Tell me about what do you listen to in breathing? What does it tell you?
1: Yes, yeah, so if you're listening to, so in a lot of acting exercises, uh, in choir to some extent, in music to some extent too, you listen, if you're having an exercise that's more about physical theater, you're listening to the movements around you. And when you make different kinds of movements, if you're having to run around a room, you're going to breathe differently than if you're quietly sitting, or even if you're having to be someone who's pretending to be asleep or who has passed away and, and think more about I'm, a good visual for some folks, although this is not the entirety of nonverbal theater or physical theater, is uh, when people see mimes and how expressive a mime can be, um, really playing off one another learning how to be so in tuned with your partner or partners that without a spoken word, it's really amazing some of the exercises you can do. You can mirror each other without ever saying a word to each other. You can stand in front of each other and start moving one arm or a leg or an eye or an eyebrow, and you can do it almost simultaneously. It's this kind of magical experience of how connected you can be with someone without having to verbally say and confirm what you're about to do. You don't have to say, I'm about to lift my left arm slowly and then <laughs> lift my right eyebrow quizzically at you. You, just, you kind of become uh, in sync in a really cool way that we're, we're able to do as fellow human beings. So it was a very large part. And we did say the word listen all the time in performing arts spaces. And then more so as a piece of the theater program I was in in San Antonio, it was theater and communications were the same department. So they were viewed as inextricably connected. So there were those who really helped put terms like listening on it, but it never really sunk into me that they meant something that's considered an
0: entire field. (laughs) (laughs) The field is huge. I feel like it keeps getting bigger.
1: (laughs) The field is large and it's one of, I love fields that are just inherently uh, transdisciplinary and multidisciplinary. And so having that background in performing arts and visual arts really helped me later in peace studies, which is my graduate work in education, which is my graduate work because listening really is such an important anchor almost to I haven't really found anything where listening isn't an important root or anchor. Uh, It's it's harder for me to think of things where it wouldn't apply, but it helps so much in education. The impact one can have uh, listening to one's students and co-learning with one's students can change the whole feeling of a class and really help encourage learning in a way that you don't see if the only encouragement is to listen to the one at the podium.
0: Yeah. I'd love to know more about that. Um, can you um, give me an example what what you mean by that?
1: Yes. Uh, so I don't know what, uh, what everyone's experience kindergarten through secondary school may be, but uh, when I was growing up, I was growing up across different states, but primarily it was one or two teachers in front of the classroom And the students are all sitting, and the teacher is standing. And the teacher, you revere the teacher, of course, and the teacher has knowledge and wisdom to impart. And for the most part, unless you are asked a question or specifically instructed in some way, the students are the listeners, and the teacher educator is the one speaking and the one being listened to. It wasn't until university that I started having courses where it was more, we're all going to sit in a circle together. We're all going to be at the same level. We all have something to contribute and we're going to learn together. And I found, at least for myself, that I learned much more and probably learned more effectively in those scenarios versus, again, kind of that shift from absorption to, a more participatory uh, mode <laughs> where I'm also involved. I'm not just taking in and learning and retaining. I'm also needing to listen, relate it, synthesize what I'm listening to so that I can also contribute and give something for others to have as well.
0: Yeah, you know, I think um this listening piece in education um from what I can tell so far a lot of it is you know listen to me and you know be quiet mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, maybe sometimes paraphrasing or whatnot but for the most part it's more about are you doing what we tell you to do <laughs> you know <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I just wonder you know I see um I see how that plays out in the schooling I mean not not all teachers but in general I see how that plays out and I think oh there's so much more that could be done um, just a sidestep. I did a listening lab at a school. I was asked to come and do one at a school. This was here in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one of my toughest groups I've ever had. They didn't listen to, they didn't follow the rules. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I had to intervene Aww. multiple times <laughs> to get them to change their patterns and really listen to each other. It was hard work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so funny. It was.
1: It was. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, uh, but did it ever sink in? Did it, did something ever shift?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, not, not with everyone, just like normal. But yeah, for the majority, yes. Even though you had a few people who grabbed onto the the processes, like the uh, like listening circle and the structure, they loved it. But then they wanted to turn it into a rule, you know, which is different than really using that as a a process to be able to listen to one another. They're like, Oh, this is how it should be. And it should be like a rule. So it it shifted. So the, the, so a few people, their, their approach would have turned it into a rule, which is not really what you want to do with that, you know? (laughs) So yeah, that was really interesting too. Yeah.
1: Did you do more schools after
0: that? No, I haven't really. I mean, I do stuff at the university all the time. That's different. Um, But when it comes to teachers, no, I have not, I have not worked that much with with teachers. I work mainly, you know, doing, working with students or working in organizations. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, Well, that is a really, that is, that is so interesting to me that that is what happened. And it makes me think a lot about it's now, it depends on what circles you're in, but for a time it was very much a common phrase to say classroom management, like we need to manage this classroom. And if you, the teacher are not seizing your, the control of the situation, then you will be overtaken by these, you know, wild, (laughs) untamed, this idea of uh, not, of it kind of being scary to relinquish that power and to have things be more open. But to the best of my knowledge, there are schools very different than the ones I attended all around the world that are more so the other way. They were just not ones that that I was exposed to.
0: I was wondering if you could share a story where, where you were either surprised about listening or where listening had a big impact on you.
1: One of the ongoing research projects that I've been working on is looking to better understand the efforts of peace-based organizations that are centered around listening, specifically between communities in the Middle East, in Israel and Palestine. Mm-hmm. And I was just so blown away in a good way by some of the projects and things that, that they would do. So there's this organization called New Story Leadership. They're based in Washington, D.C. And that actually has its own importance, because what happens is they bring delegates, is the, is the term they use, but they bring youth right after high school, college age youth from Palestine and Israel together, but they bring them together in the United States. And you're paired for homestays, one Palestinian and one Israeli. And during that homestay with each other, you're going and you're having a very narrative, dialogue, listening-based training of sorts, as a mode of learning how to be leaders. So it's very much a leadership training program, all based on listening to each other. And some of the things that I've, I've seen or heard at through my interviews with the alumni or through programs that I've attended is seeing the transformative power of somebody who is Palestinian listening to someone who is Israeli and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And some of those exercises were so powerful. So it might be each person, please share a really a time you were frightened, right? Like a time you were frightened growing up and they would share a story and what the person or persons listening in that small group were asked to do was not to relay the facts of the story. They're asked to relay the feelings of the story. They, you know, I could tell that you felt frightened. I could tell that you felt sad that this happened. I could tell. and and really understanding each other's emotions helped find a commonality that both communities want to come together. Both communities are tired of being afraid. And then moving from the listening, to coming together to change the narrative. So they talk about changing the story, having a together story, uh, no longer having these rigidly opposed narratives that the communities kind of live within, bridging those and creating new stories through, they do lobbying in Washington, D.C. The fact that they're in Washington, D.C. is very important because in the Middle East, they don't have the same rights.
0: Mm.
1: So it's not, it's not possible to have that same atmosphere of safety and connection if half of the people don't have the same rights as the other half of the people. So they found that being in a country where they have the same rights really helps facilitate the openness needed, the curiosity needed, the feeling of confidence in, in sharing your story and not being Fear of any kind of retaliation for doing that is all very key. And then they do these really amazing change projects. So, some of the alumni that I was able to interview have done really amazing things. And one that always stuck out to me was, and again, those projects are done together. So, it's one Israeli and one Palestinian. And one of those projects was called Yala Yoga. And Yala in Arabic meant like, let's go, (laughs) let's go do yoga. And
0: -hmm. they do
1: yoga programs that. Are very intentional on uh, in the occupied, right at the edges of the occupied territory and parts of Israel, and they bring together Israelis and Palestinians. But before they try to engage in any dialogue, <laughs> or it, which are inherently difficult dialogues, they do yoga together. And when they do yoga for a couple hours together, people are falling down, people are laughing, people are. Finding naturally that each other are human and they can drop their guard down. Then they have a meal together and then they start talking. Then they start having a dialogue and how how effective that seemed to be in these small group settings for helping build relationships that were long-lasting, where people wanted to keep in touch and to keep learning about each other and building up a community. And these things are small efforts, but they really do add up.
0: Well, we can learn a lot from those efforts. If you think about um, if we were to translate into the school system and challenges between kids or in the organizational system, (laughs) you know, even working with um, employees that have conflicts, I think that would be really interesting to take some of that and see what you could do with it. Mm-hmm. even though you said you know they bring them well at least in the first example that they bring them to Washington DC to have those conversation because it's a neutral space where people have similar rights and i and i wonder i'm just wondering right now you know if you have in in certain structures organizational structures or you you have a school system that that equal or that you know equal space or having that is is not a part of the system so i wonder I'm just thinking out loud how to create that space even if it's not part of the system you know to pay attention that that could influence what's possible if especially in very these you know these are very extreme situations of dialogue that need to happen right Yes
1: 100% yeah. yes yeah. that's a great question it's one it's one that I find myself pondering as well Yeah because power dynamics Exist all over the place.
0: All over the place,
1: right? Not necessarily Mm -hmm. to those extremes where there's certain legal protections for some and not others, but they do exist all over the place, and they do impact how much people are willing to share, and how much people are willing to listen, Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: how much people are willing to act upon what they're hearing. (laughs) So, yeah, it it can really impact a lot because it's if. If you're in a situation and you have, this is something I've observed, and you have more responsibility, you also have more decision-making power that sometimes you want to listen, but at the same time, there are, there are next steps that need to happen for that listening to feel meaningful for everyone who is involved because they too are aware of those power dynamics. So they don't want to just feel as though they're participation in a dialogue or them contributing their thoughts or perspectives or ideas is just being used to check a box. They really do want to feel like they're participating in a meaningful way and helping the community.
0: So uh, let's take that because this is really important when we're thinking about uh, listening and leadership, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Would you be able to give me a specific example just to give a, a clearer picture to our listeners? of what that means to listen and not just check off a box?
1: Yes, yes, definitely. There have been multiple instances that I've, I've really learned from over the last few years. I had an unusual opportunity when I never anticipated where <laughs> there's all different levels of something called shared governance at universities and institutes of higher education. and Often these are seen, and they can be seen all around the world as, as things like a faculty senate or a combined senate and so forth. At the university that I am currently a part of, that I love dearly, <laughs> which is the University of Maryland, we have several shared governance bodies. And for two years, I was I was actually kind of sought after, which is a funny thing to say, but I was sought after because nobody else wanted to be the president or the person helped for the graduate students, of which there were about 10,500. it's a huge group. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's bigger than, than folks think, but University of Maryland is like its own city. <laughs> and And graduate students live in a limbo. Sometimes graduate students are students first and treated as students first, and at other times they really are... The drivers of a lot of the teaching that's going on. They're the drivers of a lot of the research that's happening. And in those capacities, they are treated as employees, which makes sense because they're working. Uh, In some scenarios, if it's with their advisor who's also helping with their academics, it might be more of an apprentice type of situation, but those are becoming more and more rare. And it really is, you know, a dual identity of you're a student and then you're also an employee of a very like important essential part of the university as an employee whether it's administratively research oriented or teaching and so it, it makes advocacy and representing this group a little bit tricky and a little bit since it's a time of change and it's been it's been a time of change for several years but the dependency upon graduate students has grown as the economics have shifted in higher education, uh, I I can only really say that for the United States, but I am aware of it happening in other countries as well, to this area of tension because, because of the responsibilities and the needed protections of graduate students in some cases. So we have a number of instances Where so, I ended up being the president of graduate student government, and I was kind of sought after because my friends at the time said we need somebody who does peace (laughs) because that is what is lacking, and we need somebody who does peaceful negotiations and has this listening background because we have a lot of tension and anger between internally amongst graduate students to some extent, depending upon the topic. But more importantly, there was this division kind of going up and getting troublesome between graduate students and administrators. And it took a good year for us just to rebuild bridges where before, I kid you not, I I took on my job. My first meeting, my first day after I was elected was with an administrator who said, you know, how did he put it? He said, Hi, your predecessor never got back to me in six months. Like, I don't really want to work with you all. And I just thought, oh dear, I'm going to have to do some repair here. Um, and I learned why. I learned why that was, and it was it was more complex than than how it was stated to me in that first meeting. But that was the, that was my first greeting on my first day. And I, and I had come to try to advocate for a peer mentorship program for international students in particular. <laughs> so I was just taken aback. I was like, oh, we can't start there. We have to start way back here because you don't even really want to be in the same room as us. Um, You're checking a box because, you know, if you don't meet with us, then you fear that we will go up the ladder, so to speak, and you'll be forced to meet with us. But there is not this willingness on your part to meet with us because you don't feel like it's meaningful. So we had to take a step back. And this happened with many departments.
0: (laughs) So this means that you were elected. You had your agenda, let's say. Right. Mm-hmm. And you went into this this first meeting and you recognize, oh, they have there's some need here. There's something that's happened. There's a history, there's there's a you know, a backstory here. And before they're able to listen to what I would like and yes. and listen to me, I first need to back up and pay attention to their needs and take care of you know, some cleanup here or whatever, build trust in order to get them to where I need them to be.
1: Yes. So basically, yes, <laughs> there was a lot of needing to do that. But also I learned sadly over the years that in the case of that particular administrator uh, and a couple others, for the most part, everyone's very well-intended. Everyone wants the best and they want the community to come together. For a couple of administrators, like the one that was literally the greeting, there was no greeting, <laughs> We jumped right into let me tell you how horrible your group is and how I don't have a great interest in meeting with you, but I feel like I have to. And in that case, that that administrator definitely had a lot more power. Like they, they just do. They had a lot more power. They're at a very high ranking position in charge of of quite a quite of multiple departments. And unfortunately over the years, kind of learning that certain individuals used that rhetoric, even when it was no longer true. So kind of got stuck in a rut and we're able to use that as a reason not to listen. So just being on the lookout for that and realizing the power dynamics there was very key. So then learning, you know, well, how do we still help get some of these really positive ideas to come alive? And that happened through going to other departments, going to folks that were on that individual's team looking for cross collaborations, finding out where there was common ground, because sometimes there would be if that individual had something they wanted to get done, and it would be helpful to have graduate students (laughs) helping with that effort. So it made for some really interesting, complex relationships. But what we started to notice over time was whether or not people like the awkward limbo position graduate students are in or not, whether or not they principally believe that there should be more value placed on graduate students, it's still very hard to get others to act upon those principles when there are tangible benefits to not acting upon those principles. So that's been very difficult for us as a group to try to show how mutually beneficial uh, the granting of some rights or the changing of some policies can be for the entire community. And sometimes it's really hard to convey because it's a longer term benefit. <laughs> mm-hmm. And in the short term, the benefits are being reaped from graduate students having less policies in their favor or having less outlined, written down protections because we're in this limbo land. And so that's, that's just one example of where it happens, but we see it We see so many well intended and excellent administrators as well. We have some administrators, staff, and faculty who have positions as department chairs or college deans who are phenomenal, who've helped make really positive changes. And then you have these instances where there are leaders who feel that they have gone above and beyond to say, unlike my predecessors, I'm going to have town halls, or I'm going to set up these listening sessions. We have had things in the past called listening sessions. And this isn't even just for graduate students now. This is just across even the state, higher education system, higher education. We're going to set these things up because we want to listen to you. We want to listen to you students, undergraduate and graduate. We want to listen to you faculty. We want to listen to you staff. And we want what we listen to to help inform our decisions. And that's how it's framed. However, if there's no follow-up after that town hall, if there's no follow-up after that series of listening sessions, I've witnessed time and time again, very sadly and disappointingly, that even if those administrators took some of those comments or perspectives and integrated them into their decision-making process, unless... That is conveyed to the people who gave their time, and sometimes the time given is substantial. Sometimes it's a one-hour town hall. Sometimes it's volunteering to be on a council or committee, and it's several hours every week. <laughs> and <laughs> and they give their time, right? They they're giving their time. They're trying to help their communities be heard. And unless there's a, a tangible follow-through, where somebody in the leadership says. kind of echoes back what they have heard. You know, I hear you. I heard you say this. Here's what we will do because you said. It doesn't have to happen in the moment. They may not know what they can act on in that moment. Even if it's two months later or three months later or two days later, whatever it is, if there could be this follow-up piece, people would feel respected. People would feel that their time was meaningful Being given to whatever the effort was, whether it's a COVID 19 response group or how to improve campus transportation. (laughs) You know, there's all different kinds of topics that can be around, but it's very problematic. And I watch so many people become very skeptical or jaded over time if they gave time and gave time and really worked hard, put an extra effort to try to find solutions. And then the upper administration, whatever the case may be for that particular problem, didn't act upon those recommendations and never explained why. Those individuals felt like they were used. They really did. They felt like they were used. So it was lovely that someone asked for their perspectives. And that was a wonderful step. And and that was a lot of progress. But if they've given their time throughout the year and they think that they were used, they may never want to participate again. And and I have witnessed that happen a number of times where people then stop participating and it becomes a, a negative kind of cycle because it's well nobody wants to participate. We want to listen, but nobody's participating. No one's showing up anymore. <laughs> and you have to explain, well, have you thought about why? <laughs> why why did you have participants? in years past, and they've dwindled off? Have you given that any consideration? Is it truly that they're indifferent? Or do they not think that this is a meaningful use of their time? And if it's the latter, then why? And how do we make that a little bit more, you know, effective?
0: <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I was thinking about like, it could be that their input was meaningful, but then they don't know it. It was mm-hmm. never... They were never told what happened. It could be that people just listened, didn't do anything with it either. But it could be that they there was something done with it. And then um, they were never, nothing was communicated to them. And so the cycle wasn't complete. And I was just thinking about dialogue. And you probably know this more with peace. That this is probably in peace. I can't imagine. Like it's it's this listening process of listening and speaking or whatever. It's, it's it's I don't know, cir- uh I, I'm just picturing a circle, you know, kind of, it happens, but it's just not like this one way direction. It comes back, you know, it's like this, where it's like this give and take that is, is um, in order for it to really feel fulfilling, satisfying um, their, this need for knowing how we impact and what value we, we bring through this conversation. It seems like
1: 100%. Yes. And what you said is is spot on. And then there will be a a handful of us who are the elected student leaders in our case, but I've seen it happen with faculty and staff as well. And even administrators who don't feel, you know, don't feel heard. I see it happen at all the different levels and it can even happen in the reverse level. Like sometimes an administrator feels like they haven't been listened to over and over again to the point where they no longer want to, they need a pause. They no longer want to engage because they're not seeing the point anymore. So it doesn't always have to be the top down, but uh, more often than not, I've seen it happen in that way. And it's exactly what you're saying, where there's a handful of us who may see that elements of a discussion had been integrated into a decision, but it never got relayed back. And not everyone in that room has the tools like us, for an example, we don't necessarily know how to reach out to the 200 people who attended that town hall or the 25 people who were a member of that council all year. So it's really a missed opportunity and really unfortunate because it could really improve healthy community relationships and a long-term commitment to all being in things together. If that one little piece that seems to go missing could just be filled, <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: especially when it is happening. You're right. Sometimes the the ideas cannot be acted upon, but what we see um, over and over again as well, which is, I think compounds the problem rather than helping the solution is frame discussions where, okay, we're going to talk today about, I'm just going to pick a, I don't know, a question, <laughs> like a something we hear a lot about. We're going to talk today about how to financially make this department work and while balancing out affordability. Okay. Team, we have people from faculty, staff, students, both graduate and undergrad. We have administrators come up with ideas. Okay. Then everybody goes and they come up with this all on their own time. They come up with their, their ideas, they come back. And then uh, we have a lot of processes where people then vote, right? So then you might vote on the ideas and you get, through all this work, and we're talking hours upon hours of work that people contribute of their own time volunteer. They voted up the ranks. This takes several months only to learn after many nudges later when their votes have all been overturned (laughs) by the Mm -hmm. uppermost level. And then they're like, why? We spent so much time. Why did nobody... Why don't you like our ideas? We worked so hard. We came together as a community. We had all these different stakeholders. We had all these different conversations. We tried to consider all the elements. We worked so hard and we hear nothing from you. We just know that you chose not to do anything. We worked on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you you ask and you ask and you ask and unfortunately sometimes what then trickles down eventually is none of your ideas were ever viable to begin with. Why did you come to us with such unviable ideas?
0: Oh my gosh. Right?
1: <laughs> And, and the and, criteria wasn't clear. <laughs> well, maybe next time you can tell us that, you know, when we, when you bring, oh when you open this up as this big giant, imagine the new world type of area, if there really are confines and limitations, please do convey those before people spend truly, I mean, this, this committee that keeps coming to my mind, easily spent over a hundred hours coming up with those ideas.
0: That's expensive for the.
1: That's expensive. For the- <laughs> <laughs> like, and right, like they easily, and they came up with all these different ideas and they drafted yeah. them and they voted on them. And they. And this particular one comes to mind, but I could name several, like a, I could easily name like a dozen examples of that happening to different committees and councils on campus to the point where, or it never quite, there's just these little gaps where, Even recently, last week, I was in a meeting uh, related to strategic communications, and we're talking about COVID response. And we were talking about the ways students wanted to get news about COVID. And I asked like, the head leaders of this department, I said, you know, throughout the summer, I I sat on 12 different COVID committees. (laughs) There was a lot of committees, and I I only sat on one fifth of the committees, but I was one of the people that was on a a bunch uh, as the graduate student and the same idea kept coming up and we kept conveying it and it never happened and we never were quite sure why and she was so excited and she said what is this idea and i told her and she's like it never made it to me <laughs> and we just had this moment of what are we supposed to do all of these committees thought they were telling all the appropriate people their proposals we were telling people in your staff people on your team the people that were your proxy if it doesn't make it to you that way then why are we meeting to begin with? Did none of our recommendations meet? So there's just these little missing gaps in the, in the.
0: Little missing gaps.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> little missing gaps. <laughs> Which are creating huge <laughs> gaps or something. Right, Giant disconnects. And and, it's and that happening. happens, I'm sure, all the time, everywhere. And you realize, you know, so, so to pay attention also to, on, in terms of the flow of communication, mm-hmm. that's really important. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Because everyone was well-intended. She really wanted that idea. <laughs> it's so
0: sad. And then it happens through an informal conversation, right?
1: Exactly. In a yeah. much less formal conversation.
0: Uh, and I think that's what uh, people are missing a lot with everything. I th- how much gets done like that with informal communication. And right now with um, everybody working online, that's a lot of that is missing. I think mm-hmm. there's the people really missing those, those getting past those gaps. <laughs> yes, they, they are.
1: Yes. Yeah. We'll never take those gaps for granted. In <laughs> education, those are gaps too. You don't have those moments with your students right before or after a class where they felt comfortable coming up to you and asking that question. They didn't want to ask in front of 20 people.
0: Right. right. Yeah, they're yeah. right. Mm-hmm. So it's missing. Yeah. Um, I'm going to shift a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. If you could share with our audience a listening tool or something practical that would, that would help them either in a, in the business context or a personal context, what could that be?
1: Yes. That's a, that's such a good question. Uh, This is kind of building upon our prior converse, like a prior part of our conversation, but something I have found is so meaningful because sometimes I'm in that role. I'm the person Uh, We have many roles, right, in our lives. So sometimes I'm the person who's able to help make the decision or help to make the change. So that gap I was speaking to earlier, the tool I I hope everybody maybe can glean or adapt to their own circumstances from this is to be the leader in your world, wherever that is, (laughs) that you are making sure those gaps don't happen. So I, I was helping with, uh, at one point, our graduate student government. We're representing 10,000 plus students, but we had you know, 80, 90 students every month meeting as the representatives of all the different departments or most of the different departments. Not every single one was covered, but always making sure I knew every single one of those people and prioritizing. Yeah, it was a lot of people, but it was probably the best use of my time. That I set up one-on-ones with all of the different representatives, so I could have a conversation where I learned their story. I learned the story of their department. I learned the story of their field. I learned what mattered to them, so that then I could synthesize, find the patterns, find the commonalities, and figure out where we could figure to find out change, where it could happen, where are those points where we can actually make something happen, so that our time together isn't only listening to each other's troubles which has its own purpose and value. It definitely does and to not feel alone, to feel a sense of community, but going further. So how can we synthesize all those conversations, which, which really do add up when you have 80 or 90 people, it takes some time to meet with each person. And not everyone took me up on it, but many do. And it's what in each of my roles that I've had, because I moved from graduate student government to the student council for the system of Maryland, which Now we represent as the student council for the system. We represent one hundred and seventy-two thousand students. Wow! So (laughs) it's a lot of students, and you're representing based on system-wide policies, or which is almost statewide policies. There's only a couple of schools that are in the system, in the state, and those one-on-one conversations are what people remember. It's how I've been able to keep in touch with and have long-lasting relationships with the people I work with, which is. That's something that's meaningful personally to me, but it made me more importantly effective as a leader because I focus on the person and listening to what they have to say and what they have to convey. I remember them as a person. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't remember them as rep for physics. (laughs) I remember them as You know, I remember Mm -hmm. them and I, I know them and I know them at a level that helps me truly advocate for them better. And I can go back to them and I can say, and this was that piece that's missing so often, I'm not perfect at it by no means, but more often than not, I make a concerted effort to always go back and say, even if the news isn't good, (laughs) I took your idea. Here's where I took it. Here's what happened. This is going to be a multi-year effort if we want to see it happen. It's going to take persistence or in the rare occasion where it's an easy fix, I was able to go here. Guess what? done. (laughs) And it's because of you and not just saying, you know, we did something because of you, but expressing the needed gratitude that needs to be given to those people for sharing. Because sometimes it's hard to share. Sometimes the things that they're sharing, the problems they're sharing, put them in an extra vulnerable position because they're opening quote unquote, the of worms. They're quote unquote, stirring the pot. They may not be well liked for a little bit. in their in their department if they point out the department's pain points, yeah, but they're being brave. And so that appreciation for their time and for their bravery needs to be conveyed. So those are the tools that I would like to convey to people is the human relationships are what matter and being authentic, learning about the people that you're working with, the people you represent, the people you lead and following through with them and showing your gratitude to them. Is a whole cycle and it needs to happen over and over, but it's such a, I don't view it as work because that's the part that makes it worth it, yeah. <laughs> but, but I realize if it doesn't come, if that's not the way you operate and it's viewed as all this extra time you're using up that should be used on other things, I can see that, but for me, it's the most worthwhile use of time I've ever had in in those roles, so that's just my opinion.
0: That's beautiful. I love that. <laughs> and, and those people... Um you know, you matter then to them and they're probably willing to go the extra mile for you too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you were to leave our audience with like one last message or a takeaway, what would that be?
1: I think something that kind of, this goes all the way back to that moment where I had to speak on behalf of an entire community and I was so scared. Um, yeah. but something that came up when I was Sharing stories about being Jewish, and it was a very open and frank conversation uh, with with fellow people in my community. Something that came up, and it's always stuck with me because it seemed to help other people. And I've heard other people say it. I didn't coin this by any means, but I think it's still really important as a takeaway. Is how many stereotypes came up, how many things were predetermined before someone even asked me a question. They were asking me the question, but they really expected the answer to the question to validate what they were already thinking.
0: <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. uh, and so this idea of, and it, it might even sound funny, but this idea of part of active listening and being curious and listening with empathy and compassion is kind of taking a moment to unlearn your preconceived notions and making yourself a blank slate, even if it's just for a moment, and to come to come with your questions and knowing you don't know the answer necessarily to that question. So taking away those assumptions and thinking before you think like, why do I think this way? Why am I asking this question this way? Why am I making the assumption that this person will be like this because they're of this identity? Or why am I making the assumption that this person will be like this because this is their career? Um, it's hard, but if you're able to, pauses are important. And if you're <laughs> if you're able to, before you ask a critical question, take a moment to pause and kind of wipe your brain clean of your preconceived notions. <laughs> it can really make for some really incredible moments of of mutual understanding. And I think those are really important in dialogue and in listening
0: scenarios. Oh, thank you, Annie. This is this is great, and. Thank you so much for this conversation. Is there anything else that I haven't asked you that you would like me to ask? No, I think you have it covered. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> that was extremely checking good. in with that black that blank <laughs> slate. <laughs> yeah, that
1: was yeah, I feel like we covered Yeah, we covered a lot. I, yeah, so hopefully hopefully um is somehow at least fun for people to hear and maybe they have things that they can find of use to.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. If, uh, people want to get in contact with you, how would they do that?
1: The best ways to get in contact with me would be to find me. One way is to find me on LinkedIn. If you're on the LinkedIn platform, I do respond quite a bit on LinkedIn. Uh, and I'm just on there with my name, Annie Rappaport. And that's a great way to, um, If you don't know me prior (laughs) to reach out to me, my last name is hard to spell. I am well aware. Uh, So just be careful about how how to spell my last name. You can also email me. And uh, should I spell out my email or will that be in like a link somewhere?
0: We will put that in the the notes. We'll put that in the notes. We'll put the LinkedIn link also in the notes for those who are listening. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then cool. they don't have to worry about spelling your name. Just I was like, like oh dear, I can, <laughs> I can spell my name
1: out right now. Just it's like, long. <laughs> my name is Long and there's a lot of sounds. <laughs> there's Not a,
0: a problem. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so yes. So in a nutshell then, since that's how it will be, the best way to get in touch with me is via LinkedIn or email. If there's anyone out there who's interested in peace and conflict studies, who's interested in... In uh, I work a lot in the intersections of memory and peace. So, how do we remember the past? How do we listen to the past? Which I think is like a whole nother interesting conversation about how do we listen to the collective past as humanity. Anything along those topics I find fascinating. And then my other vein of work that I'm always happy to talk about is governance and participatory democracy, uh, getting people civically
0: engaged and so forth. So
1: you can contact me about either of those, and I will talk with you and listen with you for hours <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh thank you annie and it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast
1: thank you it's been an honor to be here
0: i am your host raquel arc from listening alchemy and i hope you are inspired by this episode of listen in and find one person today to practice your listening superpower Please subscribe and like this podcast and share it with others so we can catalyze a listening movement together. A big thank you to Ivo Tiemann for producing the music and Cecilia Mercado for getting this podcast set up. Find more information at www.listeningalchemy.com. Enjoy listening in.